Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Today's text is a little bit more difficult. We're going to be reading in uh, Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to cover, we're going to read actually starting back with Jesus' commissioning of the disciples to go out and read all the way to the end of the chapter. So it's going to be Mark 6, uh, verses 7 to 30, and I'm going to explain why again, why we're doing that. Mark intends these two episodes to be read together. He's He's calling us to read them together as God's instruction to us. So, and uh, I'm entitling this, Pledge Your Head to Heaven, and you will see why in a moment. So Mark chapter 6, you can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, It's also in the booklet and up here on the screen. Now, hear the Word of God. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two, and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John The man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When he heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with this request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. 
So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, I ask that you would open the word of God to us this morning. Lord, would you please help us to hear and receive your word. Lord, we humbly admit, Father, these are, this is one of the texts that is difficult for us to hear and receive. But Father, we want to hear it by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that, Lord, you would work in us and give us hearts that embrace and obey your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I was reading through this uh, text this week and praying through it, I was reminded that uh, last year we heard from our missionary in a very closed uh, Middle Eastern country that I won't even mention. We did not do it that day because that country is so closed. And you remember they came here and they shared that their spouse, who we supported, along with another worker, had actually been caught in a border supporting work going into the country, and they were both martyred on the spot. And it was a stunning reminder to us, a church that has prayed for persecuted Christians around the world, that this isn't something that happened way back then. It happens today. And it isn't something that happens to other people. This happened to a missionary that we have supported for many years for trying to get the gospel into this country. It was shocking to hear, but in fact, it's a daily occurrence. Every day, this day, some Christian will literally or metaphorically lose their head. They will give up their life for the gospel. And there are, in fact, many reasons why this happens. Some of them are religious. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are political in a context like China. It's usually politics, actually. Uh, but underneath it all, it's ultimately sin. We don't want to give up our own sense of sovereignty when we hear the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so there's a quote by a man named Joseph Parker, and it uh, lay behind a song that I used to love when I was a mid. And the quote goes this way, the man whose little sermon is repent sets himself against his age and will for the time being be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man, off with his head. You had better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. And I, I discovered that quote because when I was a, a young Christian, a, a man named Keith Green, who was a very popular singer, had a song called Pledge Your Head to Heaven. Actually, Bob Dylan played the harmonica in the song uh, and did that, and it was based on this quote. And that is really the message of our text today, that it was not only for John the Baptist, it is actually the message to every disciple of Christ. You have to pledge your head to heaven. That is what discipleship means. Now, why do I say that? Let's dive into the text. 
For those who've been uh, studying with us, this won't be a surprise, but for everyone else, this is another example of what we've referred to as a Markan sandwich, a sandwich in the way that Mark tells stories. He loves to do this. He'll start one story, he'll inject another story that seems to have nothing to do with it, and then he'll finish the first story. And it's his literary device, his way of saying, read these two stories together. You remember we saw this, we've seen this several times. Back in Mark chapter 3, we're told his family has heard about Jesus and all that's going on, and they're not too sure. They, They think he might have lost it mentally, and they set out to go get him. And then all of a sudden, we hear about the scribes and the Pharisees coming in and saying, Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. And then it finishes saying, his family arrives, they're calling him out, they're trying to stop him. And Jesus saying, who is my family? It's those who hear and obey the word of God are my family. And so Mark is saying, read these two stories together. What the family was doing was really no different than what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Another example was when Jesus sets out to heal Jairus' daughter, and on the way, there's the woman with bleeding for 12 years, remember, the same age as Jairus' daughter, and there's all these links between the stories. And after he heals her, he then goes and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And Mark, again, is wanting us to read the stories together. Well, uh, he's doing the same thing here today. Notice at the beginning of the text, we we read where he commissioned the apostles. And in verses 12 and 13, we read that they carried out their commission. We are told they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then all the way in verse 30, he finishes this. As it were, everything in between is a parenthesis. In verse 30, he says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, it's interesting. Notice when he commissioned them, they're referred to as the disciples. This is only the second and last time they're referred to as apostles in Mark's gospel in verse 30. But I think the real reason that that's going on is not so much he's talking about the apostolic office. The word apostle means one who is sent. And who is sent by Jesus to carry forth the gospel? All of us. All of us are sent ones. We're not apostles in the sense of, you know, that original 12, but we are in the sense that we have been commissioned by Christ to carry forth the gospel. And so, notice they went out, they preached, they drive out evil spirits, and they heal the sick. Exactly what Jesus has been doing, and exactly what, if you go back and look in Mark Uh, earlier in Mark chapter 3, I think it is, where he actually gathers the apostles around him, the disciples around him, he selects the 12. He specifically says that they would be with him, that he could commission them and send them out to preach, to drive out spirits, and to heal the sick. So they are doing exactly what has been done. And they are going out, notice, very importantly, it tells us that they preached that people should repent. Normally what it says is they preach the gospel, they preach the gospel of the kingdom, but here he specifically tells us they preach that people should repent. And then verse 30 follows immediately in time. Everything that's going to happen in between we're going to see is actually referring to a previous time. Mark has held it off till now for a purpose. Because notice he, he sandwiches in the story of Herod and John between 
verse 13 and stating that they came back. Because actually, he tells us that Herod heard about it, because John's name had been well known, but Herod had actually imprisoned John all the way back in Mark 1.14, we were told. Herod had arrested John. And so John has been in prison long before this point in the gospel. And in fact, he's already, we're going to see, has, has killed uh, has killed John the Baptist. But Herod at this point is really starting to hear about Jesus. Jesus' ministry really begins his public ministry after John the Baptist is arrested. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes off for the, you know, the, the temptation in the wilderness. And during that time, John is arrested by King Herod. And Notice in this context, Mark is bringing forward and he's pointing out the different answers that everybody's asking, who is Jesus? Okay, which has been a key question in the gospel. And so some people are saying that, well, he's Elijah. And I'm going to talk in after hours today about the relationship actually between Elijah and John the Baptist. But this was a key thing. People were looking and saying, before Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come back. There's a reason why they say that out of the Old Testament. So some people are saying, he's Elijah. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. Other people are saying, well, no, but he is one of the prophets uh, like long ago. He's just like one of them. But then some were saying, no, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, if we're following Mark's gospel, we're like, risen from the dead? When did John the Baptist die? We haven't heard anything about it. But that's because Mark has saved it till now. Because the key question that Mark wants us to wrestle with right now is not even this question of who is Jesus, but rather what happens? What do we learn from the fate of John? And there are two points here in the text. Number one, John's fate prefigures what's going to happen to Jesus. That's not the main point, but do notice John is going to stand in front of a king. He's going to be condemned by that king unrighteously. There's going to be uh, comments, and, and the wife is going to be involved, and it's going to end up with the death of the prophet. That's exactly what's going to happen to Jesus, who, of course, is the prophet, the God of the prophets, but it's a prefiguring of that. But far more importantly, he's sandwiching it in right here because he's telling us that John's fate is a picture of what happens to anyone who would go forth and preach repentance in this sin-soaked world. If you're going to receive the commission of Christ and you're going to go forth, Mark is saying, be warned. This is what happens when you preach repentance. You better pledge your head to heaven because do not expect a warm welcome from the world. And so then at that point, Mark dives into this disturbing story. You want to know what happened to John? Well, here's what happened to John. And notice it begins by saying, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Now, this can be confusing because there's actually four different Herods in the New Testament. Okay, there's four different guys named Herod. The most famous Herod was known as Herod the Great. He's the Herod of the birth stories of Jesus. He's the Herod that killed all the infants when he found out that Jesus had been born. So you can tell, not a good guy, but he's the founder of a dynasty. Herod had 10 wives. 10 wives. Okay, so once again, for the dads out here, start feeling better about yourself. 
This is not a good family, okay? And it's only going to get worse. He's got 10 wives. And Herod was so humble that when he had sons, he named them all Herod, which makes it a little confusing for the rest of us, but Herod didn't really care about that. He just had little Herods everywhere. And so you have to know them not only by, that's why you can keep reading Herod, but it's different people because they did have different middle names, and sometimes they go by that. So the Herod in our story is not Herod the Great. He's been dead since the time that Jesus was a young infant, okay? This is Herod Antipas, who was the son of his fourth wife, Malthes. And there's some irony here because he's referred to as King Herod, but he never was a king. He was what was known as a tetrarch, a ruler of the fourth of Israel. And in fact, what's going to happen later, we don't read about this in the Bible, but Herodias so wants to be the wife of the king, she keeps egging him on to bug Caesar and bug Caesar until Caesar makes you king. And Caesar says, I've had enough of this and actually exiles him. And he dies in exile wanting to be called king. So Mark here is pointing out some irony because we're going to see this entire thing resolves around Herod is all about his kingdom and what he wants to do. And it doesn't matter what he has to do, anything that will bring him power, even chopping off a prophet's head, he will do. And so this is the Herod that we are dealing with. Now, the other person here is Herodias. You might know she's got just the feminine form. This Herod had some issues, okay? Because she is also descended from Herod the Great, which may start sounding creepy, and it is. She's the daughter of another one of Herod's sons, and she was married to another one of Herod Antipas's brothers, Herod Philip. She was married to her uncle, whom she left for another uncle. Okay? Does this sound creepy to anybody here? Okay? It's going to get worse. Okay? It's very creepy, and it sounded just as creepy to them in the first century, okay? This is worse than the worst thing you see about supposedly some hillbilly somewhere where they're all inbred. This is exactly what the family of Herod is. They are all doing this. Herod Antipas, our Herod, had met Herodias in Rome, fell in love with her, convinced her to divorce her uncle husband, Herod Philip, and marry him, her other uncle. So here I got this from a man named John Mark Comer. It's just a simple graphic. doesn't have everybody. But you can see some of these things are in red. All of those are incest. All of them. Okay? And this is the, the family tree that we are looking at. Now, again, I want to remind you even our age, as bad as it is, what does it say when it looks at this? Okay, I'm not sure I believe in objective morality, but something's wrong with that. Okay, even our age can figure that out, right? Well, I got news for you. Jewish law was very much against all of this. All the stuff in red was completely illegal in the first place. So even a couple of generations back, it had already been illegal, and they've just continued on with incestuous relationships all the way down. It was against Jewish law, but it was very much in line with common practice of Roman rulers and other rulers. 
They all did this. They would marry people not for love, but for what was going to bring them power. And if it served power, we'll divorce one person, we'll marry another, I'll even marry somebody that I'm related to. This not only happened in Rome, we've all heard of Cleopatra, right? The Egyptian princess. She's actually a Greek princess. She was married to her own brother. And that had been being done for many, many generations in their line. This was very common, but all clearly against God's law. And that's because they're doing it for two reasons. It's to fulfill a lust sexually and a lust for power. And that runs throughout this story. It is what is driving everything else. So with that background, we read about John and Herod and Herodias. So notice we're told in verse 18 that John, and you got a picture probably what's going on. It's not like John went up and knocked on the door and said, hey, Herod, this is against the law. John's a prophet. He's out proclaiming the word of God. And what do you think people start asking him? What do you think about this stuff that's going on with the guy that's ruling over us? And what's John's answer? Yeah, that, that's not lawful. He can't do that. Yeah, but he, he's proclaiming himself to be the king. It doesn't matter who he proclaims himself to be. One can't do that. Well, he, th that's the way the Romans are. It doesn't matter what the Romans are. That's immoral. It's wrong behavior. And so John simply says... You got to repent. That is unrighteous behavior. And so he said this regarding Herod and Herodias. And what we read in the text is John the ba I mean Herod because it's causing political things and and the ancient uh, Jewish historian Josephus what he really drives into is Herod's political motives and he says look Herod had to arrest John because it was undermining Herod's authority among the people of Israel because John the Baptist was very popular so Herod wants to arrest him but he's not going to do anything with him he's holding on to him but Herodias is like Jezebel in the Old Testament she is holding a grudge because, see, she's left one Herod for the one that she thinks is going to get her the power that she wants. And now this crazy prophet eating locusts and wearing, you know, camel skin coat is getting in the way. And so she's like, this guy has got to go. She wants the prophet killed. But notice Herod is actually divided in mind. Notice what it says there that she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him. He's angry with John, but he's protecting him because he knows him to be a righteous and holy man. And when he heard John, he's greatly puzzled, but he liked to hear him. He's, he's torn. He doesn't really like what John's saying, but something inside him is saying, oh, on the other hand, this guy's a righteous guy. I may not be, but this guy is, and there's something that is stirring. I read this week uh, by uh, Goethe in Faust. He, he wrote these lines about people of a divided mind, and when, as soon as I read them, I thought immediately of Herod. It says, in me there are two souls. Alas, and there division tears my life in two. One loves the world. It clutches her. It binds. 
uh, itself to her, clinging with furious lust. The other longs to soar above the dust into the realms of high ancestral minds. See, I got, it's like I got two souls and they're warring. One of them is filled with lust for all the things in the world, but the other one is saying, I want to get above that. I want to be that. And that's exactly what Herod is struggling with. But see, this is a huge warning to us. It's not the main point in the text, but please hear. Herod is a warning of the danger of the divided mind and soul. Having an attraction to the truth and righteousness, but not being willing to repent of sin and embrace the kingdom of God. Herod wanted to hang around. He wanted to be there. He liked to hear, but he wanted his sin. And if you do that, and you try to hang in that place, don't be shocked when one day you wake up and you find yourself beheading the prophet. Because that's what sin does. It warps, it hardens, it destroys. So we've got this situation, but Herodias is in the background and she's biding her time. She's waiting. And so there's an idea that pops into her head, and it is fulfilled on this sordid day of debauchery. Now, notice in verse 21 that it's, Herod is having a birthday party, and that may seem to be innocent to us, but it was not in this time. Jews did not celebrate your birthday. That was a pagan festival and idea. And because it was a pagan festival and idea, what do you think birthday parties in Roman culture were like? Were they times of holiness? We gathered our friends around. We sang songs to Yahweh. If you're wondering, no, that's not what happened. It was debauched. If you were wealthy enough, you ate food, literally would make yourself throw up so you could eat more food. You would get completely drunk. There was all kinds of entertainment. I'll be, I'll be G-rated because we have children here. There was entertainment that was not good. And that's exactly what Herod has going on. The guy that wants to be king over the people of God. This is what he is engaged in doing. And so Herod is in the middle of this thing, and, and make no doubt about it, all the people reading this in the first century knows exactly what this means. Herod is drunk off his tail. He's got all of his buddies around, and they're expecting a debauched show. Herodias says, I know who can give a debauched show, my daughter. Is that a little disturbing? She would do that with her daughter. Can I point out it's even more disturbing that that means Herod is experiencing not good desires for his grandniece who's also his stepdaughter. Is anybody skin crawling? Okay, again, so, so however bad your own dad was, he's probably getting above this bar, right? I mean, this is a disaster. As I kept reading it this week, I was like, this is worse than I ever even read. I mean, I knew it was bad, but the more I thought about it, this is disturbing. Well, let me see if I can make it better. The word where it says the king said to the girl, that's the same word that was used for Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. It generally means a young, young girl. Does that make it better? Every line you read in the story makes it worse, and it's meant to make it worse. 
This is disturbing. It is disgusting. And Herod then makes a proverbial offer. It's also ironic. He can't offer the kingdom. He doesn't possess the kingdom. Caesar possesses the kingdom. Herod's just kind of watching over it. But this is a proverbial saying. You can read it many times in the Bible. It doesn't mean literally I'll give you half the kingdom. It means I'm throwing open the doors to the treasure house here. What would you like? I'm, in this case, I'm so excited by you, my stepdaughter. What do you want? At that point, she goes off and she asks her mom, what do I ask for? And Herodias says, gotcha. This is the moment I've been waiting for. See, what I'm really interested in is not Herod, I want the kingdom. And so to get that, I've debauched my own daughter, I've pushed my husband into further sin, but now I'm going to get what I want. Because what I want you to do is go ask for the head of John the Baptist on a dinner plate. How disturbing is that? I mean, you would think at this point in the party, everybody would be like, well, I got to go. This party is over. But see, in these kind of affairs, they are debauched and given into sin. And so the girl rushes back, and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a dinner platter. And Herod is trapped. Herod doesn't want to do this. But notice, (laughs) even though he had respected, feared, and been fascinated by John. He had refused to repent, and now he's trapped in his own sin because he says, the only way I can get out of this is to dishonor myself before all my dinner guests. Let's see. I can, I can come back on my word, or I'm going to have a righteous prophet's head chopped off. Which am I going to choose? And Herod says, well, sorry, John. But I can't lose face, as if everything he's done to this point wouldn't be enough to shame anyone. Now he suddenly kind of develops a conscience. I can't, I can't break my word. So he sends word out. And so the righteous prophet had called for repentance from sexual and political sin, and it cost him his head. And it's a sober reminder to every person who has a call from Jesus Christ. And so, notice here, this is what's going on, and, and how, do, how does this apply to us? Because see, remember, Mark has sandwiched them together. This story belonged way earlier in the gospel, but he's held it till now because he's saying, hey, see how the disciples are going out? They're preaching the gospel. People are hearing. They're getting converted. They're, they're taking command over evil spirits. They're laying their hands on the sick, and, and the people are getting well. Who would like that? And what do we all say? Oh, me, Lord, I want that. Oh, yeah, let me finish the story. Because when you do that, you might have your head served up on a platter. You better pledge your head to heaven if you're going to accept the call of Christ. And so that's the question for us as we apply the word today. Very simply, have I pledged my head to heaven? This is a sobering, difficult text. One of the reasons we preach through biblical books is these are the kind of texts people like me would like to skip, right? Let's preach something cheery, but then we're distorting the gospel because this is there. See, I like 
preaching the part that says Jesus commissions you and he gives you power over all the works of the enemy and he sends you out and all this great stuff happens. We like preaching that. And then let's just skip over and we'll get down to the next chapter where Jesus is doing another miracle. But see, Mark says you can't do that. You've got to read these two together because they're both true at the same time time. John the Baptist is so powerful in his proclamation of the kingdom. And God is at work through him in such a way that Jesus says there's never been a man born of women that's as great as John the Baptist. This guy is the greatest of all the prophets. You take Isaiah, you take Jeremiah, you take Elijah, you take Elisha. This guy is the greatest of them all. And he still ends up with his head on a platter. That's a sober reminder to us. It's a protection against triumphalism. See, we we want to believe the whole country and the whole world are going to turn to Jesus and we're going to rule everything. And we will in the eschaton. (laughs) When Jesus has returned and we are under him, at that point that'll be true. Not in this age. Never at any point in this age is that going to be true. And friends, this is very important. There are a lot of Christians out there and we're doing everything and we're taking everything over for Jesus. No, you're not. If you preach repentance to your age, you better pledge your heaven, your head to heaven. Because at any point in this age, you could lose your head. It's simply the way it is. And that will not change in this age. The sins may change uh, from age to age, but we are always called to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to call people to repent and turn to Christ. Now, let me say really clearly, there are a lot of Christians today who are literally giving their lives for Christ. I serve on the board of a persecuted church ministry. I read every day of Christians who are suffering and dying in Nigeria China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, just, just all over the place where they are being called to give their lives to the gospel. And thank God that is not happening for us. And we need to be careful to not equate what we are going through in any way, shape, or form with what they are going through. It is not the same thing. And all we do is demean the sacrifice they're paying. Okay, if one of the disciples stood up and said, well, Herod said something bad about me, that does not compare to what he did to John the Baptist. Okay, nor does what's happening to us compare with these folks. And thank God for that. But is there pressure for you and I to get with the program? Do do the Herods of our own culture like it when we say, repent? I mean, if I go down to the docks today and just start calling out sins, are people going to say, this is so awesome? People are not going to do that. And I want you to notice, actually, there are two areas in this text that are really the same. The exact same thing that got John the Baptist in trouble can get us in trouble today. Number one, we have to pledge our head to heaven because we have to call for repentance for sexual sin. Notice the specific thing that we're told in the text that John was calling them to account for is what you're doing is unlawful. Sexually, you, you have your brother's wife, who he wasn't even supposed to have in the first place, but now you've doubled down on the sin. You cannot do that. Well, I'm the king. No, you're not, and you still can't do it. It doesn't matter who you are. This sin is 
wrong. The Herodians violated biblical sexual morality in many ways. Fornication, polygamy, divorce, incest. And so there's no way John could avoid the issue. Again, I I do not believe from the text that John went into Herod's court and said all this. But if you're going to be out and you are going against the spirit of your age, what questions are they going to ask you? They're going to ask you about those things. Do, Do we have any option today? Are people going to not ask us regarding all kinds of sexual things in our culture? It's not possible. We are going to be asked What do you think about this? What do you believe? Because it is so central an issue for people today. Uh, There was no way for John to avoid the issue, and there is no way for us to avoid the issue either. And let me say, there really never has been, but going all the way back to when I was a kid in the sexual revolution of the 60s, we, we have been so far off the beaten path, and now it is that sexual revolution, the LGBTQ plus revolution, and just general sexual depravity that is going on all around us. There is no way, if you and I are preaching the gospel, you are going to be asked, and so am I, what about all of this? And the temptation in that moment, the massive pressure is to compromise. I don't want to talk about that exact same pressure there was for John the Baptist. But see, Mark is telling us you can't compromise. This is part of proclaiming the kingdom. They had to go out and preach that people should repent. Repent of what? Sin in whatever form it is. I have to preach it to myself. I have to repent of it. You have to preach it to yourself. We have to preach it to the world around us. It is a requirement for us to do this. And you remember I mentioned this last week, but In the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, in Thyatira, there's a couple of them where it's done, but in Thyatira, it's really, really clear that they were compromising with sexual sin. And Jesus says, you better stop doing that. You're you're in bed, so to speak, with Jezebel, and it's going to bring judgment on you and even on your children. And if you don't stop, I'm going to snatch your candlestick out of its place. Compromise is not an option. So we simply cannot compromise. Because let me say, people want to, you know, well, this is difficult. Who knows what the Bible says? I I know what the Bible says. It starts on page one, and it rolls all the way to the very end where it ends with the wedding. The Bible is massively clear on this. This is not an area, well, you know, good minded Christians disagree. No, they don't. And the church has understood this for millennia. It's only in our day we're suddenly wanting to reread and change what has been thought about this, uh, but it is crystal clear from Genesis to Revelation. And so standing in the truth, let me be clear, standing in the truth in this area might cost me my reputation. People will just simply get upset. You're a bigot. You're a horrible person. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to be one. I'm calling myself to account. I'm calling all the sins out. But it doesn't matter, okay? But it might cost me my reputation. It might cost me promotions at work because I don't get with the program. It might even cost me my job. But my head's still attached. Because for some believers, it costs them their head. That's what it costs John. 
And there's no record, and I don't believe he did, that John at the last moment said, I, I, I changed my mind. As, as the sword fell, with every fiber of my being, I will not stop preaching. You must repent. So that's the first area, and it's a question for us. Have I pledged my head to heaven regarding standing by biblical truth regarding human sexuality? It was a huge issue in the time of the early church because their sexuality was very similar to what we're seeing today. We, we're, just, we're just back to what they had. But the early church had to stand. John the Baptist had to stand. Mark is telling us we're going to have to stand. Am I willing to pledge my head to heaven for biblical truth regarding human sexuality? There will be a cost. It will become less and less popular as we go along. And if we get all triumphal thinking, nope, we're going we're to shift and we're going to vote the right people in the office, that's not going to happen. Remove that from your thoughts. It's not going to, because it's not part and parcel of this age. And that leads to the second area, which is standing for truth before political power. Because notice, mixed into all of this, it's not just the sexual stuff. They're ultimately doing it because they want power. That is what they want. John confronted Herod and Herodias, the rulers, and it cost him his head. Because this is a big shock to us, right? But politicians, those in power in our culture, they want full loyalty. They want you to, you tow the party line. But if you're John the Baptist, you can't tow the party line. It, John stands in the tradition of Nathan the prophet. And what if it's even King David, the man after God's own heart, the one through whom Messiah is going to come? What are you commissioned to do, O Nathan? Thou art the man. But what about all the good that David's done? This might lead to thou art the man. But surely you can come. Thou art the man. It doesn't matter whether I agree with you politically, you are the party that I like. None of that matters. Is there sin? Then the sin is called out. That is simply what has to be done. So there is no way. See, today we hear, and there's constant pressure. you got to pick, and there's major issues, and you pick this politician, and then you never say anything bad about them. You, you don't call out. The, when our guy sins, I remember a few years ago when an evangelical leader, because one politician had better policies as he was running for office, but there was all kinds of horrible sexual sin, and the evangelical leader said, well, we're going to have to give him a mulligan. Ah, uh, Prophets don't hand out mulligans. See, John the Baptist said, well, I'm going to have to give Herod a mulligan because at least, you know, he's working to get Israel together and be its own kingdom. Nathan didn't say, well, David's done so much good. He gets a mulligan for the whole Bathsheba, killing Uriah, letting his daughter be raped by her brother. He gets a mulligan for all of that. Doesn't work that way. But see, this is a huge challenge for us today, even if it calls for us, requires us to call out somebody that we generally like, but to say, that's wrong. Your words, your beliefs, your actions are wrong. And we're being told, no, no, you pick this side or you pick that side. And you know what our side is? The kingdom of Jesus. That's our side. 
And wherever we line up, that's where we line up. But see, if you do that, what happens is you lose access to political power. I don't really care. That's not my goal. My goal is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, from the actual king, the actual ruler who's going to call me to account. So we cannot do that. But standing for for truth in this area, it might cost me friendships. Man, we have seen in recent years, it drives me crazy, evangelicals will swallow all kinds of ridiculous, approaching towards heretical ideas that will get over. But you didn't vote for the guy that I liked? I can't spend time with you. Uh, Can I point out the Bible actually speaks to one of them and it doesn't say anything about the other one? Churches split over exactly how we respond to COVID. Read the whole Bible many times. It's not in there. But we'll swallow all kinds of other stuff. And what that tells me is because my loyalty to my guy, my party, is outstripping my loyalty to the kingdom. And this can get very uncomfortable for us. It can cost us the access to political power, and it costs us access to simple solutions. I like black and white. Just, I just stand for this person, this party. Whatever they do, it's good. Mm, can't do that. Not in this fallen age, because as Bobby opened our meeting, okay, every morning wake up and say, am I in heaven yet? As long as the answer is no, it's not going to be simple solutions. It is a messed up world. And sometimes it is bad solution, God awful, and I don't even want to think about it. And that's what you got. And we just have to recognize that. And we have to walk through that with integrity. And in our hyper-politicized and partisan culture, it is becoming increasingly difficult. But we need people who will be clear, I stand by the kingdom. I'm not, I'm not engaging in some of this. And because sometimes it's even, you have to, what, what, what a Christian ought to do is completely demonize the other people. No, I'm trying to reach the other people with the gospel. I I am less concerned about the other things. I want to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to get with your program. We, we, We see this all the time in our culture. And so, have I pledged my head to heaven regarding standing by all biblical truth? Even when that makes it hard for me in our current divided environment. Because see, we have lines broken down, but I got news for you political right or political left, I can, I can critique some things biblically on all sides. And I can critique things even sometimes when a policy may be right, but dude, the way you are putting it is offensive. The way you are speaking about human beings is degrading. And I don't accept that. I won't be part of that. But see, this is what Marcus Nellis, notice in the text, it's both things. Isn't this just like our age? There, there, there is sexual confusion and there's this grasping for power. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not going to play along with that. And Mark is saying, and that's exactly what it means to be commissioned by Jesus. So I want to remind us, I know this can be challenging, but I want to rem- cause us for just a second as we get ready to come to the table to remember the ward promised to all who follow the John the Baptist, okay, in this thing. I'm talking about pledging our head to heaven, but I want us to remember 
the outcome of pledging your head to heaven. John the Baptist was hated by Herodias, but he was loved by Jesus. John the Baptist was forsaken by Herod in that moment. When Herod needed to man up, he wouldn't do it. But he was embraced by Jesus. Before his head had hit the ground, the Father had welcomed him in. John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, but on the resurrection, Jesus is going to put a crown on that head. And that's the end of the story. Don't stop the story in the middle. It's challenging when we hear this. I'm like, Lord, is there another story? I, I like when we win. And here's the reality. We do win in the end. But there is no guarantee in the meantime. Okay? The early church suffered much persecution. Far more Christians are dying today than at any previous point in the history of the church. And the gospel is spreading far faster than at any point in the history of the church. The two are, well, which do you believe, Brett? Yes, both. That's the way that it works. At this very moment, Mark is saying, the gospel's spreading. It's going out. The apostles are being sent out. It's going. The word is spreading out. It's getting back to Herod. He's hearing. At that moment, we need to remember John the Baptist. The two go together. Now, we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And as we do, I, I want to remind us of all that Christ has done. Because here's the good news. You and I may be called to pledge our head to heaven, so to speak. Christ completely pledged and sacrificed himself for you and me. That's the only reason that we can do so. And so we have to remind ourselves, and we're going to today, both that Christ died in our place, that he is raised, and that he's going to come again. And we are living in light of that. So as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I remind us you don't have to be a member of our congregation. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, which means John the Baptist was not saved because he stood firm to the end. He was not saved because he died. He's saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how you and I are saved, okay? It is all by the grace of God. That is the basis on which we come to the table. And if you believe that, you are welcome to come to the table with us. If you don't believe that, then you should let the elements pass. As we get ready to come, what I want us to do is we, we used this a few weeks ago. We very often do a confession of the faith as we come to the table, and we're going to do one of the simplest that we have, which is simply Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Because see, it reminds why, why would I pledge my head to heaven? Why would I be willing to do this? Because Christ has died, but Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In light of all of that truth, then I'm willing to, yes, Lord, whatever you are calling me to do now, because I want on that final day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So together, let's uh, recite that creed a couple of times. Christ has died. Christ is risen Christ will come again. Christ has died. 
Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that truth, if you know that all of that is, in fact, the truth, then I invite you to come to this table. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that all of your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed in our place. We pray, Lord, as we come to this sacramental table today that you would meet and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, when you took flesh to rescue and save us, you endured suffering, rejection, and death. Like a grain of wheat, your body was slain and planted in the ground. But you taught that if a seed dies, it will sprout and bring forth many seeds and new life. So, we are here today as those who have come to life through your death and resurrection. And Lord, we receive now the bread of life, giving thanks for the salvation we have in you. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, the suffering you experienced throughout your life was concentrated into a single day when on the cross you suffered, bled, and died for us. But through your suffering upon the cross, we have been delivered from Satan, from sin, from eternal death. As grapes were crushed to fill this cup, so you were crushed so that we might drink freely from the cup of salvation. So, Lord, we receive now the cup of life, giving thanks for the salvation we have been given in you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and we're going to cry out to the Holy Spirit to empower us. I know this was a challenging text to work through, and if we're honest, it, it, it's hard to say, yes, I'm ready to run out and pledge my head to heaven isn't it? If it's not, talk to me later. We got to talk. Okay? But the good news is the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and He's here to empower us to be able to stand that way. So let's cry out to Him. Lord, at this table, we have been reminded of how You suffered and died for us. And Lord, what a comfort this is as we face our own trials and sufferings. Jesus, you were forsaken so that we might know we will never be forsaken. And at this table, Lord, we are also reminded that you have conquered death and that one day 
you will return to judge the living and the dead. So Lord, we cry out for you to pour your Holy Spirit out upon us. Empower us to live in light of that day, in light of eternity, rather than in light of this fading world. Lord Jesus, inside we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we cry out that you would help us to pledge our heads to heaven now, bearing whatever scorn, reproach, or suffering might come our way as we faithfully obey and proclaim your word. Lord, we ask that all of this would be done in the name of our Lord Jesus, the suffering servant and the reigning king. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Now I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. I encourage you, by the Holy Spirit, may you be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. By the power of the Holy Spirit, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Brothers and sisters, whatever you face this week, know that you are blessed with inexhaustible, eternal blessing. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.